Glad to have you with us on this Senior Recognition Sunday. If you're visiting with us this morning, perhaps you're here for Senior Recognition or for graduation, or maybe you're visiting for another reason, we're glad you're here with us. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, we say this regularly, but we want to say it again. We're glad that you're here with us, and we're hopeful that we'll be able to encourage you by pointing, to Je- pointing you to Jesus Christ this morning. And the way we're going to do that is to open the Word of God together. So for those of you who are new, you should know that we are going through a series on the book of Acts, making our way verse by verse through that book. And the hope is that every Sunday when we open the Word, that God speaks. In fact, to that end, I'm going to stop and pray here and ask that God would do just that this morning. Uh, Father, as we make our way through the book of Acts this morning in Acts 17, we have great confidence that every time we gather together, that something unique can happen. Because we know that every time we open your word, you speak. And so, Lord, this morning, I pray that you would help me to be faithful to preach what your word teaches. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning, that we would be ready to hear from your word, that your spirit would be at work in such a way that we would leave here convicted of our sin, but also encouraged by the hope that we have in Jesus, that we would realize we are far greater sinners than we ever would have imagined, but at the same time, you are a far greater Savior than we ever could have imagined as well. And so, Lord, we just pray that we would leave here with that in mind this morning, convicted of our sin, but encouraged by who you are and what you've done in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, help us now as we open your word to be faithful and to have ears to hear. It's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen. Well, as you know, and as you've already been reminded of this morning, it, it is indeed graduation season. I've always been a big fan of this time of the year. When I was a kid, my hometown newspaper would publish a special graduation section each year. And I have vivid memories of sitting in the big reclining chair in the corner of our living room and diving into that graduation section and reading about every last graduate from Sheraton High School. What were they involved with in high school? Who were their parents? What were their future aspirations? I loved reading that stuff. And I loved going to the graduation parties too. Now, if I'm honest, I think most of my love of those graduation parties stemmed from the food. Quite simply, we had access to more sugar and more goodies at the graduation parties than we did at home. But nevertheless, the point is, I love graduation time growing up, and I still do. Now, admittedly, some things have changed over the years. I don't go back to my hometown very often. When I do, I usually don't find time to pour over the whole graduation section. And I'm not quite as hyped about sugar and goodies as I used to be. In fact, now that I'm getting older and my metabolism is slowing down, I will sometimes pass up the sugar and goodies altogether, which would be appalling to my 10-year-old self. So my love for graduations is not quite the same as it used to be, but it's still there. In fact, there are other parts of graduations that I've come to appreciate more as I've gotten older. For example, as I've gotten older, I've become, a, I've become much more interested in the graduation commencement speeches. Now, I suppose some of that is a function of what I do for a job. As a person who speaks publicly for a living, I'm always interested in what others do in public speaking situations. But I also think some of it's just the uniqueness of commencement speeches. Whether it be an outside speaker or a student, I'm always interested in what types of things people have to say to the graduates. Now, of course, as you know, if you've ever been to a graduation ceremony, most graduation speeches are filled with all kinds of cliches. Be true to yourself. Make a difference in the world. Don't forget where you came from, and on and on and on. But every once in a while, you'll hear a commencement speech that actually makes you think and challenges your perspective. It's those speeches that I appreciate the most. All that to say, I still love graduation season, and the commencement speeches are a big part of that. And so I find it appropriate and fitting, and even providential in God's timing, that on the Sunday that we celebrate seniors graduating in this church, and on the Sunday that Fremont High School hosts their graduation, 
in, in a few hours, some of you will be hearing commencement speeches. I think it's appropriate that we find ourselves in the book of Acts right in the middle of one of Paul's most famous speeches. Now, to be sure, Paul is not giving a commencement address in Acts 17. Now, he is addressing a large crowd, and you can make the argument that in a similar fashion to a commencement speech, he's giving some life advice. But those similarities aside, his advice is of a completely different sort than what you'll hear at a typical graduation ceremony. In Acts 17, Paul is not encouraging his audience to remember their roots or chase their dreams. Instead, he's pleading with them to understand who God actually is and then to rightly relate to God. And in that, I think it's pretty safe to say this. Paul's speech here in Acts 17 is more significant and more weighty than anything you're going to hear at a graduation ceremony later this afternoon. Whereas most graduation speeches are focused on the here and now and life on this earth, Paul's speech is dealing with realities that have eternal implications. And so on this graduation Sunday, I want to invite you to join me in studying a different kind of speech, Paul's speech in Acts 17. And in doing so, my hope is this, that we would leave here today with a better understanding of who God is and a greater desire to relate to him in a right way. So that said, if you're physically able, I'm going to ask you to stand now out of reverence for the reading of God's word. Standing is just a simple way we can remind ourselves this is the word of God as such as do our attention. So Acts 17, verses 16 to 34, the words will be on the screen or you can just listen as I read or follow along in your own Bibles. But the word of God says this beginning in verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some among him, some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius and others with them. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So in the passage that we just read here in Acts 17, I think there are three distinct sections. There's the background of the speech in verses 16 to 21, the speech itself in verses 22 to 31, and then the response to the speech in verses 32 to 34. 
So what I want to do this morning is I want to walk through each of those three sections of the text, just to make sure we properly understand what's happening in Acts 17. And then after that, I want to pause and I want to ask this question, what takeaways might we gather from Paul's speech here in Acts 17? So let's just start by making our way through the text, beginning with the background, which we're going to find in verses 16 to 21. Now, before we read those verses again, it's important, as always, to orient ourselves as to where we are in the book of Acts. If you're here with us last week, you may remember that Paul and Silas encountered some serious opposition in Thessalonica. They were preaching the gospel, and they encountered some who were very, very much against them. In fact, some jealous Jews in that city recruited wicked men, some rabble-rousers, and they formed a mob. And they attempted to track down Paul and Silas in the house of Jason and drag them out to the mob. Eventually, Paul and Silas were forced to flee Thessalonica, you may remember last week, and head to the city of Berea under the cover of night. So the Thessalonians then, or the Thessalonian Jews, were successful in chasing Paul and Silas out of the city. But they were not satisfied with that outcome because in verses 10 to 15 last week, we learned that these same Jews from Thessalonica then proceeded to travel from Thessalonica to Berea, about 45 miles, in order to try and chase down Paul and Silas in Berea. That's what they did. To a degree, they were successful. Again, at the conclusion of last week's passage, we learned that for Paul's safety, the other brothers in Christ had to send him off to Athens, and in the process, he had to separate from Silas and Timothy. As verse 15 informed us, the plan was for Silas and Timothy to reunite with Paul as soon as possible, but for a period of time, they were separated. And that's where we pick up the story in verses 16 and 17. Verse 16 of Acts 17 says this, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now it's interesting that while Paul is waiting for for Silas and Timothy, he does not go into waiting mode, nor does he go into hiding. Instead, his spirit was provoked. Literally, he was made angry as he walked around the city and he saw that there were idols everywhere. Now, Athens at this time was known for its temples, its statues, its many works of arts that were dedicated to false gods. And this bothered Paul to the point that he was provoked. So rather than waiting for Timothy and Silas to be reunited with him, Paul heads to both the synagogue and the marketplace to start some spiritual conversations. Specifically, he wants to point the people to Jesus Christ. And it's clear from the very beginning of his interactions with the people in Athens that the the reaction he received was a mixed one. Look at verses 18 to 21. Some of the Epicurean and Stoke philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So there's two groups that are mentioned in verses 18 to 21, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicurean philosophers uh, did not deny the existence of gods, but they viewed gods to be remote and uninvolved. They emphasized the pursuit of pleasure, which in their mind could be best achieved by living modestly and denying oneself and pursuing more knowledge. The Stoic philosophers, on the other hand, were pantheistic in nature, believing in the divinity of everything and in the unity of humanity. So the Epicureans and Stoics were two completely different schools of philosophy, and yet it's clear that both were puzzled by Paul. In verse 18, some accuse him of being a babbler. In Greek, that term originally was used to describe seed-picking birds, 
but it came to be a derisive term, meaning someone who would pick up random pieces of information, like a bird picking up seeds, and then try to pass off those random pieces of information as if they were an expert. In other words, some of the Epicurean and Stoke philosophers were accusing Paul of being a fraud or a hack. He was pretending to be an expert on something he didn't know. He was just a babbler. Others, though, accused him of being a preacher of foreign gods. The idea of someone being resurrected was unheard of in Greek religion. So because Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, they accused him of being a preacher of foreign divinities. All that to say, because the philosophers were confused about Paul and what he was doing, they bring him to the Areopagus. Areopagus literally means hill of Ares. Ares was the Greek god of war, the Greek equivalent of the Roman god of war, Mars. In Latin, the Areopagus, which was an actual hill located to the northwest of the Acropolis, was referred to as Mars Hill which is perhaps a term you've heard before. In particular, there was an infamous church in Seattle that went by that name, Mars Hill. It's taken from this passage. Now, in the case of Acts 17, there's some question. Did they bring Paul to a certain hill, or did they bring him to a certain council? In ancient times, an important Greek judicial court would convene at the Areopagus. And over time, the judicial court came to be known by the location they met at, the Areopagus. By Paul's time, this council had lessened in their power, but they still played an important role in regulating city life, education, philosophical lectures, public morality, religious affairs. So the question in Acts 17 is this, did they bring Paul to the hill, Areopagus, or did they bring Paul to the council, Areopagus? Given the way the passage unfolds, it seems most likely they brought him to the council, although it's possible the council was still meeting at the hill. In any case, they bring him to the Areopagus, and those gathered are curious, what are you actually teaching, Paul? As described by their own words in verse 20, they found Paul's teaching to be strange, but they wanted to know more of what he was saying. And their motivation, as described by Luke, who's the author of Acts in verse 21, is that the Athenians would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. This actually seems to be a bit of a dig at the Athenians. The Athenians may accuse Paul of being the seed picker, the babbler, but they were the true seed pickers, constantly doing nothing but telling and hearing something new. So that's the background of Paul's speech. And that brings us to the second part of the passage, which is the speech itself. Now, before we get to the content of this speech, I think it's important that we connect what I just talked about, the background, to the content. To this point in the book of Acts, most of Paul's speeches have been directed towards Jewish audiences in the synagogue, not this one. And as we read, you will notice some significant differences in the way that Paul approaches this group as, the way, as compared to the way he approached the groups in the synagogue. Whereas his speeches in the synagogue were laced with Old Testament scriptures, in his speech to the Areopagus here, there are no Old Testament references. Now, there's certainly plenty of Old Testament allusions. I think you could say all the themes that he draws out in this speech are taken from the Old Testament. But Paul's approach in addressing the pagan Athenians is much different than his approach in the way that he spoke to those who were in the synagogues. And that's evident from the very beginning of the speech. Look at verses 22 and 23. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul begins his speech here by acknowledging the religiousness of the people of Athens. He talks about seeing altars to gods everywhere in the city and even seeing an altar to an unknown God. This is obviously a much different way of starting his speech than the ones that he took when he was addressing groups in the synagogue. For example, in Acts 13, when he addresses a group in the synagogue, he begins by addressing the history of Israel. 
and walking through some Old Testament history. Here in Acts 17, his approach is much different. Rather than going back to Israel or history from the Old Testament, he simply tries to find some common ground. He notes their religiosity, even their desire to cover all of their bases by creating an altar to an unknown God. And he makes note of this so that he can use this information as a bridge to begin talking about the one true God. In other words, Paul's approach here is to observe the culture of the Athenians and then use those observations to make a pathway to the gospel. And without question, I think there's something that we can learn from that. If you're talking to a person who has no Christian background, your approach should probably be different than if you're talking to a person who has been steeped in Christianity. Now, the goal is always to get to the same message, the good news about Jesus and his resurrection. But how we'll get there will probably need to vary depending upon our audience. And that will require much prayer and being willing to be led by the Spirit. Nevertheless, the point we're making here is this. Paul took his observations from the culture, and then he used that as a springboard to talk about the true God. And we see that evidence, or we see where he goes with that in verses 24 to 31. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, before we get to the content of what Paul just said in verses 24 to 31, and there's important, a couple of important clarification points we need to make. First of all, the content of what Paul says here in verses 22 to 31, and in particular verses 24 to 31, is likely just a summary of what he said to the Areopagus. In total, Paul's speech, as recorded in verses 22 to 31, takes about 58 seconds to read. I know because I timed it. So maybe a few seconds here or there, but it takes about 58 seconds. I think we can pretty safely say this. Paul probably spoke for more than 58 seconds. So this is likely just a summary. Secondly, it seems likely that Paul was cut off after mentioning Jesus and his resurrection at the end of this speech here. Because the passage ends very abruptly. I would imagine that this happened because, again, the Greeks had no conception of a resurrection. And so mention of the resurrection here probably seems to have put a halt to the conversation because some did not receive it well, as we'll see here shortly. So I don't think Paul said everything that he wanted to say. And so I think both of those things are important to keep in mind as we think about the content of Paul's speech here. We need to keep in mind this is a summary and that he was cut off. And the reason why that's important to note is because there are a lot of things that Paul does not say in this speech. For example, you may notice he doesn't point out that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That's kind of important, right? And yet he doesn't get there because A, the summary portion, but B, because he was cut off. Now, given that we're told in verse 18, Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, I think it's safe to assume that at some point he did talk about Jesus' death on the cross, and he obviously was talking about the resurrection. But it's likely not mentioned here in verses 22 to 31 because of the summary nature of what Paul was saying and because he was cut off. 
That said, I think it's still important to try to understand, okay, what exactly is Paul trying to say here in this speech? And I would summarize his speech by giving you just three simple points here. Point one, he's trying to help the people of Athens see that God is creator. Now, Paul emphasizes the creation ability of God and the creatorness of God in multiple ways in verses 22 to 31. Verse 24, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it. Verse 25, he, God, himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything else. Verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind. Verse 28, we are his offspring. So clearly Paul wants the Athenians to know this. God is creator and sustainer of life. He made us, he gives us life, he gives us breath, we are his offspring. And because that's true, we should not worship other gods. Which brings us to the second point of what Paul is trying to communicate. Because God's creator, we should not worship false idols. Now look at the way in which Paul connects the idea of God as creator to a warning about idol worship. Verses 24 and 25. It says this, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So the logic of what Paul is saying is this, if God created all things, then why would he need a special building made in order for us to worship him? Or why would we need to craft an idol in order to be able to relate to him? Or why would we think that God needs our religious activity to be satisfied? If he's the creator, and if he gives life and breath to mankind, then he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. And if he made the world, he doesn't need a temple to dwell in. And he certainly doesn't need us to build statues in his supposed image using our imagination, which is the point that Paul is making in verse 29 when he says this, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So again, the logic of Paul's teaching is this, God is the creator, therefore we should worship no other gods. Instead, in light of who God is, we should repent of our idolatry and turn to Jesus. That's the third point he's making in his speech. In verse 26, Paul alludes to our need to seek God and to find him. But as is made clear from the rest of the passage, we don't do that by creating idols. Instead, we seek God by repenting from our idol worship and instead turning to Jesus. Verses 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So in verse 30, Paul acknowledges that God has not yet brought judgment on the world for its idolatry. But he says the day of judgment's coming, and that judgment will be at the hand of Jesus. And we know this to be true because Jesus rose from the dead, which is the final point that Paul makes before he's cut off in verse 31. He's pointing to Jesus. He's saying Jesus was raised from the dead. He will be the judge. And implied in that is that we must turn to Christ. So again, the way in which Paul addresses the Areopagus here is much different than his approach in the synagogue. He does not quote Old Testament scriptures. Instead, he actually quotes from two Greek poems. But everything he says is undergirded by principles from scripture. And eventually he gets to the same point he did in the synagogue. We must repent and turn to Jesus. Now, Not everyone in Athens bought into this message. And we see that in the response section, which is the third and final section of the passage in verses 32 and 34, or 32 through 34. Verse 32 says this, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. 
So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. So if you wanted to try to categorize the response to Paul's speech, you could do so by making three categories. Some mocked due to their skepticism about the resurrection. Others were curious and said, we'll hear more. And a few believed, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius. Now, having pointed out those different responses, I think it's probably worth acknowledging here that the response in Athens was not near as robust as in other places in the book of Acts. In fact, we have no historical indication that a church was actually formed in Athens at this time. Obviously, at least a few believed they're mentioned by name here. But compared to other places that we've read about in the book of Acts, the response in Athens was fairly meager. Be that as it may, though, I don't think there's any indication that Paul did something wrong here. Obviously, his tactics were a little bit different than in other cities. But at the end of the day, he was still preaching the same message, the message of verse 18, Jesus and his resurrection. But for whatever reason, the message doesn't gain traction in Athens like it did elsewhere. And in that, there's probably a good reminder for us, too. Just because we faithfully preach the message doesn't guarantee any results. We scatter the seed, but God is the one who makes it grow. And in some places like Berea, it grows like wildfire. And in some places like Athens, it hardly takes hold at all. What God chooses to grow or not grow is up to him. And it's a mystery why some places he causes it to grow and other places he does not. But our role is simply to be faithful and then leave the results to God. And by the way, going forward, that's something we're going to need to keep in mind. Our job going forward is not to attract crowds. It's to be faithful to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And whatever God does with that is up to him. All that to say, though, we see here that Paul is being faithful. And there is still a response to the gospel. But it's a varied response. And that's the way the passage ends, with people responding in different ways to the preaching of the gospel. Now, having said all that, having walked through each of the sections of the passage, the background, the speech, the response to the speech, here's the question I want us to consider in the rest of our time together this morning. What do we take away from this speech? If you head to graduation later this afternoon, there's no doubt that the speakers will try to impress on you something to think about and try to give you some takeaways. Things like, Chase your dreams, remember your roots, be true to who you are. But what should we take away from Paul's speech to the Areopagus? I'm going to argue that there are three main takeaways here from Paul's speech. And for the record, none of them are chase your dreams, remember your roots, or be true to who you are. All right, point number one is this. Beware the danger of idolatry. That's the first takeaway. Beware the danger of idolatry. Both the occasion for Paul's speech and the content of his speech are centered around the theme of idolatry. Remember how the passage started in verse 16, with Paul's spirit being provoked as he walked around the city and saw that the city was full of idols. In fact, it's that provocation that seems to have motivated Paul to go to the synagogues and go to the marketplaces and start preaching Christ. And then when he's actually speaking before the Areopagus, the theme of idolatry again takes center stage. In verse 23, Paul talks about all of the idols in this city, including even this altar to an unknown God. In verses 24 and 25, he talks about how God does not dwell in temples built by men, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything. And then in verse 29, he warns that we ought not to make these images, thinking that somehow the divine being can be crafted into gold or silver in the imagination of man. In other words, he's warning about idolatry. Now, here's where the conversation about idolatry gets a little bit tricky for us. When we think of idolatry, we tend to think of people building little statues or little altars that are made to honor false gods. 
And to be fair, that does seem to be primarily what Paul is talking about here in Acts 17. He's talking about the people of Athens building temples and statues and works of art to honor false gods and worship them. But while all those things are clearly idolatry, the worship of false gods, I think it's important that we understand something this morning. Idolatry is not just statues or temples dedicated to false gods. Anything which takes away from our worship to God or our worship of the one true God is an idol. Or to use a definition from Bible scholar John Stott, an idol is a God substitute. Any person or thing that occupies the place which God should occupy in your hearts is an idol. In other words, it's not just temples and works of art and little statutes that would fall into the category of idolatry. It's anything that draws our attention away from God. And so here's what you need to understand. When we start talking about idolatry, some of you may take a deep breath and think, oh, I'm safe this Sunday, right? I don't build any statues. I don't have any false gods in my room. But actually, when we're talking about idolatry, we're talking about something that every one of us in this room is tempted to pursue. Because every person in this room is tempted to be drawn away from God to other things. Anything that keeps us from worshiping, our, from worshiping God or finding our joy and contentment in God is an idol. And given that definition, the amount of things that can be idols is almost endless. Sex, pleasure, money, entertainment, safety, politics, sports, jobs, all of them can become God's substitutes. Even good things, family, spouses, kids, religion, volunteering, Christian service, those things can be idols too. When you're looking to anything other than to God to find contentment, joy, satisfaction, and meaning, you are walking next to the cliff of idolatry. And that cliff is a dangerous one to be walking close to. Because not only is idolatry worship of a false god, it is also the robber of great joy. Idolatry keeps us from experiencing the joy of following God wholeheartedly. Now having said that, I'm just going to be honest about my own heart and idolatry this week. Because this passage was very convicting for me. As some of you know, our son Dawson was back in the hospital again these last couple weeks. He went, in, he went in on the night of Monday, May the 2nd, and didn't come home until Thursday, May the 12th. It was another really long stretch. I'm just going to go ahead and confess that I did not handle it well. More specifically, I took the other kids up to the hospital on Tuesday night, and I was just grumpy and feeling sorry for myself. I hadn't seen or talked to Tanya for really hardly any time in the week leading up to Tuesday. We'd see each other in passing, and we would talk about medicine, and we'd talk about logistics, but that was about it. We were also taking turns sleeping at the hospital, which, surprise, surprise, does not lend itself to good rest. So I was in a relational deficit, and I was in a sleep deficit. And most troublingly in my mind, it just seemed that there was no end in sight. Now, I knew Dawson was scheduled to get out on Thursday, but at the rate we'd been going, it just seemed inevitable. We're going to be back there again shortly. And so I found myself thinking in my heart and even saying out loud on one occasion, I can't do this anymore. I can't keep living this lifestyle. I was just grumpy. I was short with the kids. I was short with Tanya. In a nutshell, I was just angry. And at various points, several of my kids asked me that night, are you okay, Dad? Is something wrong? Which, by the way, is never a good sign. So I'm just going to be honest here, and I'm not trying to whitewash anything. It was not a good scene. It was not one that I'm proud of. But that night, as I was reflecting on my attitude, and in particular the next day, as I was writing this sermon, 
I was convicted that I had been idolatrous. I hadn't built little statues. I made an idol of my comfort, and I probably made an idol of my wife too. Rather than finding joy and contentment in Christ, I just wanted my life to be easy. I wanted to spend time with my wife, and I wanted to do what I wanted to do, which was not be the hospital. And the Lord convicted me as I'm looking at this passage. Satisfaction is not found in comfort or spouse or an easy life or getting what you want. Contentment is found only in knowing and resting in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying it was bad that I wanted to spend time with Tanya or bad that I wanted some normalcy, whatever that means for us at this point. But what I'm saying is this. I'd elevated those things to a position that they were never meant to have. My joy and contentment was gone because I was putting my hope in the false idols of comfort and family. Now again, understand me, I didn't have little statues to my room I was worshiping, but in my heart, that's what I was wanting most. More than Christ, I wanted comfort. I wanted easiness. I wanted my life to be free of difficulty. It's idolatry. Now listen, I don't know what idols you're prone to run to, but I bet you have some. It's probably worth identifying what are those idols. Because whatever they are, I'm telling you now, they will rob you of your joy. They will make you grumpy and bitter and angry if you allow yourself to keep going down that road. And so my question for you this morning is this. Where do you run to for satisfaction and joy? What would you say if this was taken from me? I don't know if I could keep going. What are the things that you find your contentment in? If it's anything other than Christ, let me plead with you this morning to run. Run from your idolatry. Because idolatry is a deadly poison. It's a danger to be avoided. There's a reason why John ends his book, 1 John, with these words. Little children, beware of idols or run from idols. I'm paraphrasing here, but he said the last thing he says in that book is watch out for idols. Because idols will rob our joy. So that's one takeaway from the sermon here, or the speech that Paul gives, beware the danger of idolatry. Takeaway number, two, takeaway number two, the antidote to idolatry is a right understanding of who God is. The antidote to idolatry is a right understanding of who God is. I think sometimes we think the best way to combat idolatry is simply tell ourselves, stop being idolatrous. Or tell ourselves, idolatry is dumb. But listen, if you've ever tried to defeat idolatry in that way, you know it never works. You can't just tell yourself, I'm going to stop being idolatrous. I'm going to stop pursuing comfort. I'm going to stop pursuing safety. I'm going to stop pursuing pleasure. doesn't work that way, does it? No, we must replace our idolatry with a greater love for something else, namely God. Now notice in this passage, Paul does not simply tell the Athenians, put away your idols. In fact, he hardly talks about that at all. Rather, he spends the vast majority of his time talking about who God is. Why does he do that? I think it's because the key to fighting idolatry is not a greater resolve to fight against idolatry. No, the key to fighting idolatry is a greater understanding of who God is. When we understand that God is creator, and in, the, in Him we live and move and have our being, and in Him we can find true satisfaction and joy, it's then and only then that we will be freed from the power of idolatry. As the Puritans used to say it, it's the expulsive power of a new affection. As we grow in our love for God, and as we grow in understanding of what Jesus did, and as we grow in our satisfaction from God, that affection for God drives the idols out of our heart. That's what we mean by the expulsive power of a new affection. It drives it out. And so it's only by replacing our idolatry with a greater love for God that we can then find the true freedom and joy that we were meant to have. 
So if you want to overcome your idols, don't focus on hating your idols. Instead, grow in your love for God. Turn from your sin to him, which brings us to the third and final takeaway from Paul's speech. In light of who God is, we should repent, we should repent and turn to Jesus. Again, verses 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Let's just be honest. Some of you in this room have never turned from your sin to Jesus Christ. Now, maybe you've grown up going to church. Maybe you've heard about Jesus all of your life, but you have never come to the point where you've said, I am a sinner and I need rescued. You've never repented in a once and for all way from your sin and turned to Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, you need to hear the warning of Acts 17. The day of judgment is coming. God's wrath will be poured out on all those who have not turned to Jesus Christ. And our only hope is found in the person and work of Jesus. Only because Christ died on the cross for our sins, only because he rose from the dead can we have any hope. So turn to him in saving faith. And if that's you and you're in the room this morning, let me plead with you. Make today the day of your salvation. But if you're already Christian, let me encourage you to rest today in the finished work of Christ, to treasure him above everything else, to take steps daily to grow in your love for Jesus, and to repent where your course trajectory has gotten offline. Listen, when I got home on Tuesday and into Wednesday, I had to repent of my idolatrous pursuit of comfort and family. And I had to ask the Lord to help me renew my affections for him and find my joy in him. Maybe you need to do something similar this morning. Maybe you're convicted as we talk about idolatry, that there's some idol you've been pursuing, and maybe you need to repent today and run back to Christ. I think that would be a fitting way to respond to Paul's speech here. Listen, I would imagine there will be some commencement speeches, maybe even today, that are more entertaining and humorous than Paul's speech in Acts 17. I would also venture to say that all of them will be longer than 58 seconds, but none of them will be more important. So church, on this commencement speech day, let me simply remind you of the takeaway points from Paul's speech before the Areopagus. Beware the danger of idols. Recognize the antidote to idolatry is a right understanding of who God is. And then repent of your idolatry and run to Jesus Christ. And let me plead with you to run as fast as you can. Because joy and hope and life are found in Christ alone. Period. So little children, Please do not pursue idolatry. Instead, pursue Jesus with all that you have. Let's pray. Lord, it is our prayer that we would repent of our idolatrous nature and that we would live with a reckless abandon for you. Oh Lord, we know, as John Calvin once said, that our hearts are idol-making factories. We pray that we would repent of that idolatry and we would recognize that life is found in Jesus. Lord, for those in this room who do not know you, I pray that today would be the day they recognize they need you. They need the hope that's found in Jesus because the day of judgment is coming. I pray that they would see the warning here in Acts 17 and they would realize today needs to be the day that I turn to Jesus Christ. But for those who've already done so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see areas where we're prone to idolatry. And we pray that we would repent of those areas and that we would run to Jesus where we can find hope and joy and peace once again. Lord, help us to do this for our good and for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen. All right, you can stand now for our benediction.
We'll let the Word of God have the last word this morning. Romans 11 says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Have a great week.